Chapter Four, Part Two of American Men of Action by Burton Egbert Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Lincoln and His Successors, Part Two. On the ticket with Lincoln, the Republicans had placed, as a sop to such pro slavery sentiment as still existed at the North, a Southerner and states' rights Democrat named Andrew Johnson. By one of those singular chances of history, Johnson's origin and early years had been very much like Lincoln's. He, too, was born of a poor white family, first seeing the light in North Carolina about six weeks before Abraham Lincoln opened his eyes in that rude log cabin in Kentucky. His condition was, if anything, even more hopeless and degraded than Lincoln's, and if any one had prophesied that these two ignorant and poverty-stricken children would one day rise side by side to the greatest position in the Republic, he would have been regarded, and justly, as a hopeless madman. But not even to a madman did any such wild idea occur. Poor whites were despised throughout the South, even by the slaves if there was in the whole united states any law of caste it was against these ignorant and shiftless people and andrew johnson at the age of fifteen was little better than a young savage he had never gone to school he had never seen a book but one day he heard a man reading aloud and the wonder of it quickened a new purpose within him he induced a friend to teach him the alphabet and then borrowing the book he laboriously taught himself to read so there was something more than poor white in him after all by the time he was eighteen he had had enough of his shiftless surroundings and struck out for himself journeyed across the mountains to greenville tennessee met there a girl of sixteen named eliza mcardle and with youth's sublime improvidence married her as it happened he did well for his wife had a fair education and night after night taught him patiently until he could read fairly well and write a little I like to think of that family group, so different from most, and to admire that girl-wife teaching her husband the rudiments of education. Already, as a result of his lowly birth and the class prejudice he everywhere encountered, young Johnson had conceived that hatred of the ruling class at the South which so influences afterlife so deeply. He had a certain rude eloquence which appealed to the lower classes of the people and in eighteen thirty five succeeded in gaining an election to the state legislature he nursed his political prospects carefully and eight years later he was sent to congress he was afterwards twice governor of tennessee it has been said that secession was in the beginning a policy of the ruling class in the south and not of the people it is not surprising then that johnson should have arrayed himself against it and fought it with all his might this position made him so prominent that on march fourth eighteen sixty two lincoln appointed him military governor of tennessee a position which was exactly to johnson's taste and which he filled well in this position he seemed the embodiment of the union element of the south and at their national convention in eighteen sixty four the republicans decided that the president's policy of reconstruction for the south would be greatly aided by the presence of a southern man on the ticket and johnson was thereupon chosen for the office of vice-president on the same day that lincoln was inaugurated for the second time johnson took the oath of office in the senate chamber and delivered a speech which created a sensation he declared in effect that tennessee had never been out of the union that she was electing representatives who would soon mingle with their brothers from the north at washington and that she was entitled to every privilege which the northern states enjoyed 
Three hours after the death of the president, Andrew Johnson took the oath of office as his successor, but he was regarded with suspicion at both North and South, at the North because he was believed to be at heart pro-slavery, at the South because of his well-known animosity toward the aristocratic and ruling class. He was also known to be stubborn, high-tempered, and intemperate, and he and Congress were soon at sword's point. Johnson was of the opinion that the question of suffrage for the Negroes should be left to the several states. A majority of Congress were determined to exact this for their own protection. This was embodied in the so-called Civil Rights Bill, conferring citizenship upon colored men. It was promptly vetoed by the President and was passed over his veto. Soon afterwards, the 14th Amendment was passed, conferring the suffrage upon all citizens of the United States without regard to color or previous condition of servitude. It also was vetoed and passed over the veto. Johnson was hailed as a traitor by Republicans, and the campaign against him culminated in his impeachment by Congress early in 1868. The trial which followed was the most bitter in the history of the Senate but Andrew Johnson was acquitted by the failure of the prosecution to secure the two-thirds vote necessary for conviction by a single vote, 35 senators voting for conviction and 19 for acquittal. Johnson's friends were jubilant, but his power had vanished. The seceded states, one by one, came back into the Union in accordance with the Reconstruction Act, which Johnson had vetoed. He failed of the nomination on the Democratic ticket, and after the inauguration of his successor, at once returned to his old home in Tennessee. There he attempted to secure the nomination for United States Senator, but his influence was gone and he was defeated. So ended his public life. It has been rather the fashion to picture Johnson as an intemperate and bull-headed ignoramus, but such a characterization is far from fair. But for Lincoln's assassination, some such policy of reconstruction as Johnson advocated would probably have been carried out, instead of the policy of fanatics like Thaddeus Stevens, which left the South a prey to the carpetbagger and the ignorant Negro for over a decade. Johnson himself might have accomplished more if he had been of a less violent disposition, but he was ignorant of diplomacy, incapable of compromise, and so was worsted in the fight. However, we may disagree with his policy and dislike his character, let us at least not forget that picture of the poor white boy teaching himself to read, and that other of the girl-wife patiently instructing him in the rudiments of writing. A successful war inevitably gives to its commanders a tremendous popular prestige. We have seen how the Battle of New Orleans made Andrew Jackson a national hero, how William Henry Harrison loomed large after the Battle of Tippecanoe, and how Zachary Taylor was chosen president as a result of his victories in Mexico. The country was now to undergo another period of military domination, longer lived than those others, as the Civil War was greater than them, a period from which it has even yet not fully recovered. In 1868, the Republican Party nominated unanimously for president the general who had pushed the war to a successful finish and who had received Lee's surrender, Ulysses Simpson Grant, and he was elected by an overwhelming majority. For the first time in the history of the country, a man had been elected president without regard to his qualifications for the office, for even Jackson had had many years' experience in public affairs. Of such qualifications, Grant had very few. He was egotistical, a poor judge of men, without experience in statesmanship, and unwilling to submit to guidance. 
As a result, his administration was marked by inefficiency and extravagance and ended in a swirl of scandal. Born in Ohio in 1822 and graduated at West Point, he had served through the war with Mexico, resigned from the Army, remained in obscurity for six years, during which he made an unsuccessful attempt to support himself in civil life, and entered the Army again at the outbreak of the Civil War. From the first, he was successful more than any other of the Union generals, not so much because of military genius as from a certain tenacity of purpose with which he fairly wore out the enemy. But a people discouraged by reverses were not disposed to inquire too closely into the reason of his victories, and early in 1864, after a brilliant campaign along the Mississippi, he had been appointed commander-in-chief of the Union Army and began that series of operations against Richmond which cost the North so dear, but which resulted in the fall of the capital of the Confederacy and in Lee's surrender. A bearded, square-jawed, silent man, he caught the public fancy by two messages, the one of unconditional surrender with which he had answered the demand for terms on the part of the Confederates whom he had entrapped in Fort Donelson, the other, the famous, I propose to fight it out on this line, if it takes all summer, with which he started his campaign in the wilderness. Both were characteristic, and if Grant had retired from public life at the close of the Civil War, or had been content to remain commander-in-chief of the Army of the United States, his fame would probably have been brighter than it is today. His training, such as it was, had been wholly military, and his inaugural address showed his profound ignorance of the work which lay before him, an ignorance all the more profound and unreachable because of his serene unconsciousness of it. He fell at once an easy prey to political demagogues, and, before the close of his first administration, demoralization was widespread throughout the government. A large portion of the Republican Party, realizing his unfitness for the office, opposed his renomination, and when they saw his nomination was inevitable, broke away and named a ticket of their own, but Grant's victory was a sweeping one. With this stamp of public approval, the boodlers became bolder, and great scandals followed, involving many members of Congress, and even some members of the Cabinet, but not the President himself, of whose personal honesty there was never any doubt, and in 1873 came the worst panic the country had ever experienced. A political reaction followed, and in 1874 the Democrats carried the country, gaining the House of Representatives by a majority of nearly a hundred. Following his retirement from office in 1877, Grant made a tour of the world, returning in 1879 to be again a candidate for the presidency and coming very near to getting the nomination. It was characteristic of the man's egotism that, even yet, he did not realize his unfitness for the office, but thought himself great enough to disregard the precedent which Washington had established. He lived five years longer, the last years of his life rendered miserable by cancer of the throat, which finally killed him. In the summer of 1876, the Republicans nominated Rutherford B. Hayes, at that time governor of Ohio, as their candidate for president, a nomination which was a surprise to the country, which had confidently expected that of James G. Blaine. Hayes was by no means a national figure, although he had served in the Union Army, had been in Congress, and, as has been said, was governor of Ohio at the time of his nomination. Nor was he a man of more than very ordinary ability, upright, honest, and mediocre. The Democratic candidate was Samuel J. Tilden, a political star of the first magnitude, and the contest which followed was unprecedented in American history. 
Tilden received a popular majority of half a million votes and 184 electoral votes out of the 185 necessary to elect, without counting the votes from Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana, all of which he had carried on the face of the returns. The Republicans disputed the vote in these states, however, and by the inexorable use of party machinery and carpetbag government declared Hayes elected. For a time, so manifest was the partisan bias of this decision, the country seemed on the verge of another civil war. But Tilden led in wiser counsel, and Hayes was permitted to take his seat. It is the only instance in a national election where the will of the people at the polls has been defied and overridden. Hayes was a sincere and honest man, and he felt keenly the cloud which the manner of his election cast over his administration. He was never popular with his party, and no doubt he felt that the debt he owed it for getting him his seat was a doubtful one. His administration was noteworthy principally because he destroyed the last vestiges of carpetbag government in the South, and left the southern states to work out their own destiny unhampered. He was not even considered for a renomination, and spent the remainder of his life quietly in his Ohio home. Hayes' successor was another so-called dark horse, that is, a man of minor importance whose nomination was due to the fact that the party leaders could not agree upon any of the more prominent candidates. They were Grant, Blaine, and John Sherman, and after 35 ballots, it was evident that a dark horse must be found. The choice fell upon James Abram Garfield, who was not prominent enough to have made any enemies, and who was as astonished as was the country at large when it heard the news. Garfield was born in Ohio in 1831, in a little log cabin, and to a position in the world not greatly different to Lincoln's. While laboring at various rough trades, he succeeded in preparing himself for college, worked his way through, got into politics, served through the Civil War, and later for 18 years in Congress, where he made a creditable but by no means brilliant record. He was elected president by a small majority, and enraged the many enemies of James G. Blaine by selecting that astute politician as his Secretary of State. One of these, a rattle-brained New Yorker named Charles J. Guiteau, approached the president on July 2, 1881, as he was waiting at a railroad station in Washington, about to start on a journey, and shot him through the body. Death followed, after a painful struggle, two months later. Obscure, in a sense, as Garfield had been, the man who succeeded him was immeasurably more so. Chester Allen Arthur was a successful New York lawyer who had dabbled in politics and held some minor appointive offices, his selection as vice president being due to the desire of the Republican managers to throw a sop to the Empire State. His administration, however, while marked by no great or stirring event, was for the most part wise and conservative. But James G. Blaine had by this time secured complete control of the party, and Arthur had no choice for the nomination for president. He died of apoplexy within two years of his retirement. End of chapter four, part two. Recording by William Tomko.